WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. You are listening to All of It on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. This hour, we're celebrating the best New York City books of the year, that is, acclaimed books that feature our great city. We just talked about two New York-based novels. Now let's talk New York history. Thomas Dige's new book, New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation, isn't a straightforward history. It's more an analysis of people, policy, and how the intersection of the two has shaped and changed New York City. Dija makes the case that New York passed through three distinct eras from the 70s to now. He labels them Renaissance, Reformation, and Reimagining. New York, New York, New York was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. I spoke to Thomas back in May, and I began our conversation by asking him about the three eras he describes in the book, Renaissance, Reformation, and Reimagining. I asked him to define what time period each era encompassed. You know, the time period really begins with the fiscal crisis, kind of when, when Koch takes over in 78. Uh, and it goes through uh, the Bloomberg years to 2018, which is when I started the book. It seemed to me to be a very discrete period um, in time in New York when it started in this very, very dark place and with this long arc towards a city that kind of consistently got bigger and stronger, cleaner, but also darker in many other ways. So, but it wasn't a kind of straight, passage. You know, there were major ups and downs, moments when you thought, oh, well, here's, you know, here's a new city. So it kind of broke into these three paths, these three parts of the era of Koch and Dinkins, which had its own kind of path of up and down, which was a, uh, that could have been retrenchment. That was another R word that was at the beginning. But in a lot of ways, it was a renaissance. The city began to look at itself in, in a newer, stronger way after the 70s. Um, the next part was Giuliani when he takes it over. And really, it is a kind of reformation. Um, I, I could have called that restoration because so much of that period is about kind of going back to the past. Um, people talk about the Disneyfication of Times Square. And in a certain way, the whole city had a very, um, it, it kind of looked back to the past, whether it was real or imagined past. Um, that's debatable. And then the third part is the, the Bloomberg years, which were a kind of reimagining, even though a lot of the ideas and a lot of the personnel were people who had been with Koch and had pulled these ideas all the way through. So uh, it seemed to me one unit of history that seemed like it was going to change. I think you're right that we are really on the doorstep now though, of a new, of a fourth R, which I haven't, haven't quite decided what it is yet because we don't know. I want to quote a very funny line from the New York Times review of the book. The reviews have, have been spectacular for this book. It's very positive, but each reviewer has 
taken a different idea about something you wrote. And in the New York Times, the reviewer conceded, quote, this is a good book to argue with. <laughs> so I'm curious how you decided to handle the flexibility of memory when writing a book like this. Right. I mean, I think it cuts to the core of it. It was one of the reasons why I think I started the book um, in 2013 was the, the discourse of the city was, I think, very binary and it remains so. But a lot of it came from this place of of remembering and nostalgia and the sense of a city that had been lost. And I wanted to examine that and, and kind of look into that, how much of that was real, how much of that was about the city and how much of that was about our own selves, how much our sense of mortality, you know, because when I look back running around downtown in 1980, sure, I was 19, you know, and for people who maybe were living in other ways in other parts of the city, it wasn't quite as much of a playground as I might have thought it was. And so my own kind of reconsideration of that, I think, led to me to try to think about how we look at the whole city and, and how we um, kind of look back and, and get past the memories and, and try to lay down some real markers as to what happened and try to really understand the people um, who made the change in the city, the events that made it, that maybe we're not familiar with. Maybe people who had an enormous impact, like Gordon Davis and the Parks Department, mm -hmm. um, or the community organizers, you know, the the, uh, the Gwendolyn, uh, you know, Brooks in the Bronx, and, uh, you know, Reverend Youngblood and Mike Geekin in Brooklyn, people who maybe aren't headline people, but who had an enormous impact on the city. Um, they kind of cut, cut through the romance with some reality in that way. Yeah, I was wondering how you battled nostalgia. Yeah, nostalgia's fun, you know. I mean, one of the things I did was really read every New York magazine from 1978 on, which was just to not get the the headlines, but to see what we remember really, what we were wearing, what was, you know, what were the movies that were out, what were the things that were happening at any moment, what was the kind of atmosphere of the place. And that was a wonderful corrective um, for me because things weren't necessarily always the way I remembered them. Often they weren't, you know, and it was still fun though um, to be able to take a certain step back um, and, and, you know, hindsight's always terrific, but it is also what history is to sort of be able to start to create through lines from that and be able to get that awful, horrible sense of things creeping towards reality, as in, say, former president and most famous New Yorker, who is a sort of figure throughout it, mm -hmm. um, that being Trump, you know, and sort of seeing how that evolves um, over that. Um, that is a way of kind of going back through those memories and creating narratives from it that I think were kind of tragic. My guest is Thomas Dijah. The name of the book is New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. So you begin by writing about the sad state of public spaces mm -hmm. 40 years ago, and it really kind of says a lot about the city's health and even sort of the city's mental health. Yeah. As you say, New Yorkers need to see the city and their fellow citizens as something more than adversaries, and that's why parks mattered so much. Why had public spaces become so unusable? Yeah, a, a lot of uh, there was a real sense, I think, that be that th there was a wonderful quote of, in the Times early in the book where a guy is interviewed and he says, you know, this is like late 70s. And he says, well, there's such a sense that you can't make anything good that you just do your part to make it a little worse. You know, and, and there was a kind of basic sense of 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 living in nature, you know, and not in a good way, a kind of antagonistic sense of using space. And so people like Gordon Davis, who I mentioned before, mm -hmm. who really used the parks as a way to help us rethink 
public space. Um, Holly White, the urbanist, was a great impact on a lot of people in that kind of public space discussion under Koch and all the way through. And he felt that cities existed to help people exchange. And the answer to fixing a city, to helping it back to health, was helping people fill the streets. And so public space needed to be not a place where kind of anything went, you know, where you just did what you wanted to, but where it was a place where in that kind of Frederick Law Olmsted understanding of it, that public space was a place where we exercise democracy, where we could have some shared behaviors that we understand, here's what the things we can do. And with that understanding, let's each do our thing together. And so parks became a kind of laboratory for that mindset. And I think when you think of the wonder that people had when even something like the sheep meadow um, finally was you know, taken from a dust bowl and turned into this big grassy field, it was amazing. Um, people really just went there and took their shoes off and put their feet in grass and were stunned by it. And there were those who thought, oh, this is terribly suburban, you know, but mm -hmm. people loved it. They thought there's another possibility for how we could live in the city that isn't necessarily about running back home after the day and locking the door. And, and that added, I think it helped revitalize the idea of what urban life could be in a very good way. I think some of those ideas were later weaponized into kinds of forms of control under mm -hmm. Giuliani. But initially, that was kind of why one of the reasons I wanted to do the book. These seemed such wonderful ideas. But by the time we were at the end of Bloomberg, I think they were discussed in these purely kind of control ways. And I got they kind of got a bad name from that. My guest is Thomas Dijo. We're talking about the book, New York, New York, New York. I do want to talk about leaders a little bit. You know, if you look at all the uh, obituaries of Ed Koch, the words brash and outspoken were the <laughs> adjectives most likely used. Yeah. So how does Koch and his style of governing fit into your thesis that during his time as mayor, there was a, a renaissance or a revival of some sort of the city? Right. I mean, listen, renaissances are, are not just, you know, the, the art looks great, but we also have to remember that a lot of people got stabbed during them, you know, so mm -hmm. they're kind of bloody, they're very creative, but they're bloody periods. And, and the same is true of this period where uh, Koch's sense of exuberance, his sense of pride in New York was, was there latently. And as the city was kind of teetering from the, the fiscal crisis, there was this upswelling of, of of re-examination. Oh, we actually love this place. We don't hate New York. It isn't all taxi driver. We're going to, we're going to try to love this city. And, and Koch really helped people come back to that. Um, at the same time, he also drew a draw, drove, sorry, a very deep wedge racially in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I think to his credit later in his life, I think he, he re-examined that and tried to publicly, uh, show his understanding of the mistakes he made at places like St uh, Sydenham Hospital, other cases like that. But it was uh, a period where uh, communities, certainly the black community, that had always traditionally kind of had a role in government by fiat, that, that was part of the power-sharing understanding, um, found themselves completely out of the situation. And that and Koch actively played on that. And created divisions racially. And so that is a terrible legacy of Koch at the same time. But on a purely administrative level, to close, he did something that I think Bloomberg also did very well with, which is that he did bring in experts. He brought in people who were able to do jobs and said, you do the job, I'll provide the, you know, the political cover, but do the thing that's right for New York. And not in every case, but in many, many cases, they did. You know, days after Ed Koch died, the New York Times had to go back and change its obit to include 
clue more about his poor handling of the AIDS crisis. They wrote yep. a 5,000 word obit. And I meant, think it originally only mentioned AIDS once. Mm. One, I'm curious what you, you make of that as someone who had to go back and reread a lot of news <laughs> coverage. And how did that failure shape this city? Hutch was um, understood by many, most, to be to be gay. I mean, it was sort of a, uh, we look back at that first uh, mayoral race with the vote for Cuomo, not the homo signs that were around, uh, was pretty horrifying. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of something that was discussed at the time. And so Koch's um, position on it was was very bitter, you know, that he did not really want to pay attention to it. Um, it, It's odd when you look at the mayor's reports, the mayor's annual reports that had to be done, there was very, very little attention being paid way along into what was a public crisis. So the city got off the beat very slowly on on AIDS um, at the place that was really the the epicenter, the kind of the ground zero for that crisis. Um, I have to say, would it have, so many people were operating without knowledge and not understanding um, that it's hard to say that he had any greater knowledge that he ignored, but it would have been important to have activated the city. It would have been important to work with much more the gay community and figuring out what had to happen just to get a, a greater need on it, a greater focus on it and put more money to it faster um, would have made, I think, an enormous difference. After Ed Koch, of course, came David Dinkins, the city's first and only black mayor. There has to be more to David Dinkins' legacy than he was the only black mayor. <laughs> when you think about his lasting imprint on the city, some, what is something that has outlasted his time as mayor? Times Square. Um, even though Giuliani takes all yeah. the credit for it, you know, and certainly jumped up, it was made very clear to me by people who worked on it that he did not, you know, he was not involved. The, the real groundwork for that was done under Dinkins. Um, he was the one who signed the, the agreement with Disney, think what you will about it, but it was part of a longer uh, kind of rethinking of what Times Square could be. You know, he had to survive peak AIDS, peak crack, peak crime. And he really did lay the groundwork for it. Uh, after that horrifying murder of, of Brian Watkins, the family, the young man from Utah who had come to the U.S. Open, uh, th- that sense of the city, again, you know, the cover of time, Dave, do something, the rotten apple. There was another sense of crisis that the city will never come back. And he did get the New York Police Department to re-examine themselves uh, and put through the the, the law, the uh, Safe Street, Safe Kids law that really brought the money in, that laid the groundwork, put new officers on the street that Giuliani also was able to take credit for. So a lot of the groundwork was uh, laid during those years, but I think he had a he was very hard time communicating the sense that he was in charge, that there was leadership involved. And, you know, some of his own best impulses left him being someone who seemed indecisive. At the same time, he faced a remarkable amount of racism. I mean, one of the things that was really shocking to me going back and reading newspapers and magazines from the time was the way he was written about um, at that point was just remarkable um, and jaw-dropping. Uh, the, the attitude, the, the kind of racism underlying it is, is stunning to me at this point. And so I think he was up against a lot more than just events. There's so many great people that you profile in this book. You write about the four women who changed 42nd yeah. Street, DJ Coolherc. There's all <laughs> kinds, but you write about real New Yorkers as well. And immigrants 
I found that so interesting about the influx of immigrants and how it profoundly changed the city in the past 40 years. What did it mean for New Yorkers who were already here, the haves and the have nots, this huge influx of immigrants? Well, it's boring, you know, influx. It's that's what saved the city. Fundamentally, we can talk about all the uh, great political policies and, and capital and Wall Street and all kind of stuff. But adding 1.5 million people who are mostly immigrants to the country um, really, you know, changes the economy, opens up the culture. It, when we look at what made New York such a vital place to be, an exciting new place to be in these years, um, so much of it came from this generation of immigrants coming to the city. I don't think we can in any way overestimate it. So, you know, it, the it changed the map in so many ways. Kind of general neighborhood changing is not always gentrification. Um, people moving all through different parts of the city, different nationalities or ethnicities giving way to others, rewrote the map in all kinds of ways. And so I think we really have to look to immigration as being the, the heart of the story, really. So I wanted to look at that not just in uh, or to add that to the story, you know, to make sure that it was part of when we look over these years, we don't just talk about Wall Street and we don't just talk about neoliberalism, but we really look at what immigrants brought to the table, what other people in the city brought to the table to create it. And, and they are a major piece of the economy and we need immigration. Let's talk about the last section, Reformation. It starts with a chapter titled More Like the Rest of America. Mm -hmm. And it starts with the inauguration of Rudy Giuliani. How did Rudy contribute to making New York City more like the rest of America? Something I'm not sure the average New Yorker would think is such a great idea. Yes, I don't. <laughs> so, you know, in some ways, you know, listen, I remember looking for a hardware store, you know, and they were hard to find. I, I remember when Bed Bath & Beyond opened and mm -hmm. seeing like a wall of, of towels and things and going, oh, my God, you know, look at that. And it's cheap. You know, there were things that. New York was very peculiar about, certainly Manhattan, and uh, changes like allowing in bid box retail uh, were at the initially fabulous. Oh my goodness, look, you know, we had these things here that we never had in New York. But of course, like so many things in the book, wonderful ideas are taken and allowed to become permanent. And so the city ends up being retail space, gets overwhelmed by it. Um, but for Rudy, I think that in the overall sense, that more like America thing was, uh, uh, you know, about how we lived and what the expectation was, that it was a bit more homogenous, that difference was not celebrated as much as it was kind of looked askance at. And that was a real step away from what we were used to, I think, in New York. And technology also played a role in that. And the Internet, as time went by and that became uh, something that people accessed more, Frankly, you didn't have to come to New York from other parts of the, the United States to kind of be that person and, you know, fly that freak flag the way you might have in the 60s or 70s, where you had to come to New York to be that person. Suddenly, you could find those affinities online. And New York had a little bit uh, drained away from it in that way, while the rest of the world, the rest of America got a little bit more New York, I think. 
And I do want to ask you for a final question. It's, in, you know, this is a show about arts and culture and our culture in and around New York. And towards the very end of the book, you write, the arts are also necessary for the urban soul. And the next New York will need culture as a uniting force amid a shattering world. You go on to say, going forward, keeping New York a place where artists can and want to live and nurturing the arts in our communities will matter more to the city's long-term health than feeding the global art market. Mm -hmm. I'm curious why you wrote that. Uh, because I think we need to be producing art here and not just selling it. And that's not just a hearkening back to kind of the romance of the 70s or the 80s with downtown artists. I mean, we do because we are a central place. We are kind of great urban swamp of ideas for the world. We need to not just be selling art. We, we need people to be engaging each other and, and producing it again. And some of that's just a practical matter of affordability. Uh, that's why housing matters. We need people who are young, who can uh, worry more about creating than having to like pay that 50% of income for their rent. So uh, I think we need that. We don't necessarily need islands in the Hudson. I think we need mm -hmm. uh, young people with ideas getting ready for this next generation and this new R, whatever it's going to be, for the fourth evolution of the city. That was my conversation with author Thomas Dija about his book, New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. It was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2021. And that is all of it for this hour. We will be back next hour with more great books and great conversations. Stay with us. <laughs> 